Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Debbie Hewitt has had a remarkable 40-year career in business. She is currently chair of the Football Association and a vice president of World Football. She is also chair of Visa Europe, CompareTheMarket.com and White Stuff. But Debbie started her career as a teenage trainee with Marks & Spencers in their Newark store. She went on to become the first woman managing director of the RAC. Uh, that was in 2010, 2006. And in 2011, she was awarded an MBE for services to business and the public sector. She is now, according to British Vogue, one of the UK's 25 most influential women. And it's not difficult to see why. Debbie Hewitt, it's a great privilege to welcome you here to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast. Thank you very much. So... Let me just go through some of that again. I, I normally do a, a CV with the guests, but yours went off the end of the page, so I sort of abbreviated it ever so slightly. But you were the first woman managing director of the RSE after more than 120 years, the first female chair of the Football Association after more than 150 years, uh, and now you've just fairly recently been elected as the first woman vice president of world football, FIFA, uh, and that's in the history of the, of the game. Is this what the... 18-year-old Debbie Hewitt had in mind when she started her career? Oh my goodness, no. I don't think that 18-year-old Debbie Hewitt had anything in mind about her career. Did you know you'd have a sniff of, of where things were going? No, definitely not. I had an interest in business. I loved business, you know, what made yeah. business tick. Um, so I was very conscious from a relatively early age of being interested in, in businesses. But um, the thought that I could do the sorts of roles that I've had the privilege to do. No, absolutely not. Well, a lot of people have very recently said a lot of very nice things about you, you know, around your appointment um, early last year uh, to the FA. Uh, the one that sticks out in my mind, it's very personal, but Gary Neville, who I think is a terrible cynic, called the decision inspired. So, so what, what, makes, what made you, what makes you better than all the other candidates? Oh, my goodness me. Um... Thank you, Gary, for those good words. <laughs> money, money well spent. <laughs> but, yeah, particularly coming from a Man United supporter. Yes, of course, because you're a Liverpool fan. Uh, exactly, you? yeah. So I was very grateful. Um, I think I'm a different candidate often to many, and my experience doesn't always follow the mould. And I think, you know, for those who are listening, you, you know, it's not always predictable. Um and I think because I do bring quite different sorts of experiences, very often if organisations are genuinely looking for something different rather than the tried and tested, then I give them that option. It's not what all organisations want, but the ones that have chosen me and the ones I guess I've chosen to work with too, that's been probably the common denominator. And so to a certain extent, this was the right time, the right time for you to to be in charge at the Football Association as their first as their first woman chair? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, uh, the opportunity to, to join the FA was just an incredible one, and I'm a, a, an ardent football fan. So to have the opportunity to join, you know, the, one of the biggest institutions in football in England, 
uh, and indeed in, in the world as football associations go, um, it was just such a privilege. Um, and, you, you know, I sometimes have to pinch myself when I have the opportunities that I do with that the, 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 the role brings me. Um, you know, I'm very lucky to do something that I love. Um, the, I mean, I guess like millions of other people, the last time I saw you was in the middle of the pitch at Wembley grappling with uh, Harry Kane's Harry Kane's young children as you as you endeavoured to present him with um, with the uh, the award for becoming England's highest ever goal scorer it's a very public role isn't it I mean I guess that comes with pluses and minuses yeah absolutely does one of the pluses is making his lovely kids um, <laughs> beautiful kids here Harry and Kate have got a, a lot to be proud of with those kids and to be in the middle of that pitch with 80,000 people mm. cheering at you and to behave is quite something. I'm not sure my 14-year-old twins would have been as well behaved. <laughs> yeah, you're right, it does. It's it's a burden and a privilege. Um, clearly the privileges are, are there for people to see, you know, to get to give Harry Kane his a golden boot and also Ellen White, her golden boot a couple of weeks later. You know, it's a tremendous opportunity. But there are those too. People often ask me, how my job in football um, compares to my my business roles that are pure business. And that's actually my, my sort of one-liner. The highs are definitely higher, but the lows are definitely lower. OK, so give me give me a high. Give you a high. Well, Disability Cup weekend. Um, you know, you see the impact that football can have on lives that are, you know, you know less advantaged, less privileged... Uh, than mine and you see the impact that football can have that disability cup weekend you're there as the chair of the FA uh, giving out the, the trophies um, it's just so uplifting um, it's it is a privilege I'd, I'd, I'd walk the hundreds of miles it takes me to get to the to get to the venue to do it and and, and push to be at the front because mm. it's, it's such a, um, a heartening weekend okay and then give me a more challenging challenging task one of the lows yeah you know the the Gosh, fan behaviour, you know, when referees get abused, when fans invade the pitch, people get hurt. Um, it's, well, it's interesting you point that out because that seems to be coming back, does it not? Uh, a bit more, but certainly the crowds have been quite well behaved in my experience in, in, in recent seasons, but it's but there's a little bit more of it this season? Yeah, some would say, you know, COVID's had a lot to answer for as people have been cooped up at home and eventually get the opportunity you know, to get out and about. I mean, and what I would say is it's a small minority, but it is a small minority that spoil it for everybody. And it can be toxic sometimes. And, you, you know, when you see poor fan behaviour um, or you see abuse of referees in particular, you know, I have a particular affinity with referees. My dad was an amateur referee. It's how I got into the game. Here in Nottinghamshire? Here in Nottinghamshire, absolutely, oh. yeah. Um, you know, you see, you see that, and and it's, you know, it's it's a low for me. It's definitely a low. Um, but you know, it's one of the reasons to do the job. In fact, if everything was a high, it wouldn't be high, of sure. course, because everything has to have a sense of uh, relativity, um, and the opportunity to be able to make a difference to mm. the things that are not so good about football um, is is important. And it's one of the, for me, it's one of the attractions of the job. But you know, you don't do this job just to give Harry Kane the golden boot or <laughs> yeah. Ellen White the golden boot. You do this job to make a difference across society and that's what you spend most of your time doing. Um, okay. So, so what, what will you, at the end of, at the end of your time as, as chair of the Football Association, what might you, what might you see as success? What, what's the, what are the differences that you're trying to make? 
Gosh, the one liner probably would be more people watch, play and love football than when I joined. Mm. Um, you know, that, that would be it. If that's the case, uh, when, I, when I leave this role, I will have succeeded in my mission. Um, it's a, it is called the beautiful game, for, you know, for many reasons, but mainly because it has such a positive impact on, on lives. Um, you know, for most people, it is the way that they exercise. It's the way that they uh, learn about teamwork. It's the way that they develop as a human being. It's the way we show our emotion. Um, there's so many good things about uh, the impact that football can have. And so, we, you know, I feel it's a real... Um, you know, you, you, you're you looking after it for the next generation. And to leave it in a better place um, is a huge responsibility and one I don't take lightly. Do you see this as the culmination of your, of your leadership career? I mean, you've had a long and, and very successful business career. This is, this is slightly different. It's, it's, it's in sport and it's, and it's very much more high profile. And is this what the rest of, the rest of your career has prepared you for? It's certainly the time I've spent in my career, and particularly the failures. I mean, you're, you're very kind in, in saying, you know, it's all success. You know, um, I can show you the column inches where it wasn't successful. Oh, um, we'll come to that. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, the, the failures, definitely the things I've got wrong, the bad judgments have prepared me for a job which is more high profile than some of the roles that I've held. Um, and that's important. You, you know, you need to be able to deal with the mm. highs and the lows and get them in balance uh, and bring a sense of perspective too. And the fact that I've done a number of different roles, I think, definitely helps. Um, I, don't, I don't think of my career as, you know, a, a sort of, this is the culmination, this is it, this is what I've been working to. I've never had a career plan, is the honest truth. Um, you know, things have sort of happened, you, you know, three months before... Um, this role came up, you know, I was having a disappointment in not getting another role. So, you know, life fun turns out in very different and unpredictable what you, ways. Would you tell us what that one was all about? Yeah, actually, it was uh, Gary Neville, actually, linked to Gary Neville. Um, I'd been approached to join the PFA board. Um, and, you know, what I really wanted was to be part of football. Professional footballers. The, the Professional Football Association, the, the, the players' union. And um, they offered me the role... But I couldn't take it. It was the weekend. It's taken quite a lot of time to work, work its way through. Um, they offered me the role. I, I, it's gone very quiet. Clearly, they were processing who they were going to appoint. And then I got this phone call on Friday night. It was the Friday of Brexit weekend. Um, and they came back and said, yeah, the role's yours. You know, we're delighted. And I said, well, that, that's fantastic. I can't believe it. But unfortunately, I need to get permission. Um, you know, I'm chair of Visa Europe to, to do any kind of role uh, in addition to roles that I had at the time you know I have to get permission from the boards that you're on and that was a non, that was another an, another non-exec position which e you had at the time exactly and um, you know with particularly regulated businesses you need the approval of the mm -hmm. regulator so I didn't believe that the regulator would have a problem with it but I needed to go through a process to be sure that they would approve it and respectfully give them time to approve it and the weekend of brexit ha actually happening. Uh, was not going to be a you know week a weekend that the bank would see you know proving Debbie Hewitt's uh, new role was going to be one that was going to be necessarily their most important priority. So I said, do you need to give me a few weeks? You know, I need to first of all check with the boards that yes. I'm on that they're happy with me taking it. I hadn't told them because at that stage I didn't know there was an offer. So they said, well, we we need to announce like 
you know, like really quickly. So unfortunately, if you can't say yes, wow. we're going to have to withdraw the offer. Um, so I can remember with my, you know, being with my kids and saying, oh, yeah, I've just lost the job. The job football. of your dreams. The job of my dreams. Um, I felt really upset. Like I felt a real failure and I felt devastated, actually. Um, and then I don't know, it sat heavy with me. And then, then about two or three weeks later, a, a good friend of mine reached out and said, have you heard that the FA are looking for a chair? Wow. Why don't you throw your hat in the ring? And I was like, oh, it's, you know. Football. football clearly doesn't want me. <laughs> you know, my first experience, uh, football doesn't but want how, me. But how fortuitous is that? Amazing. Right? So, but, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, the jobs which, you've, which you have at FIFA and, and, and at the FA are many times bigger than the PFA job, which as, you turned around. As it turns out, different, yeah. And as it turns out, you know, I would never have been able to throw my hat in the ring for the FA job. I would have seen the... PFA is an opportunity to get, you know, as a, as a non-exec at the PFA, it would have been an opportunity to understand the football ecosystem. Right, right. Um, so it's probably a bit on rocket speed, really, from wow. from uh, what 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 I'd uh, originally intended. So yeah, you know, as one, it's a real great lesson, isn't it? it as is, one it door is. closes, I can remember feeling really low right. that weekend. You, you know, if, if, if ever you should meet my kids, they would say, you know, we we saw our mum feeling like really wow. truly upset and. Um, and, and all that was that was that all common knowledge among all the, the footballing fraternity that you were speaking to? Or? No, not until I got the role. Um, it was, I mean, I talked uh, through the interview process about being interested in football and the PFA mm. opportunity, but it, you know, I wasn't known to football at all. Mm. Um, mm. You know, I'm sure they had to do a lot of googling to work out who, who I was. Um, and I think credit to Gary Gary Neville, who who I'm a, a massive fan of. Um, get credit to him that when the appointment was made. Um, you, you know, he, he, he made that comment because, you know, he could have said, well, yeah. you know, yeah. she, she, she's, yes, she's not no. gone to the best opportunity because he, he well, was, you know, looking think, to appoint me and he's been nothing but a supporter and, and been a good good sounding board, actually, on, well, on a few I things. see him in completely a new, a new light. Oh, I, I yeah, withdraw my earlier friend. comments Definitely. about being so a cynic. Definitely, <laughs> so you should. So, wow. So let, let, let's, um, uh, let's go back to the beginning. So your mum died when you were young. Um, you were brought up by your dad uh, yeah. just up the road from here in Newark, as, if you, as you've already said. Um, and you said, I think something that you wrote, you said um, he taught you the virtues of hard work and teamwork. Are those, are those virtues that have stood you in good stead throughout your leadership career? Yeah, very much so. I mean, my dad didn't have a career per se. You know, he worked in a factory. Uh, he had no qualifications. He left school when he was... 14, 15, couldn't read and write at the time. He subsequently has learned to, you know. So one, an example of a system that, you know, didn't care. Um, you know, he was a class class clown. He would often describe himself, you know, you know, made to stand at the back because he was the class clown. And he drilled in in us three kids, my two my you know my sister, and my brother. You know, education is everything. Education, education, education. And he realised as he got older that actually he was. He was bright, and he is bright. He's 87 now, and he's as sharp as anything. Um, but, you, you know, because he didn't have the opportunity, it, it kind of almost made him feel even more strongly that education was the thing that mattered more than anything. Um, and particularly those values um, of always give back. You know, he, he felt that, you know, if somebody helps you along the way, um, everybody has a role to play, even the person, the kid that's naughty, uh, you know, that he saw in himself, the kid who can't read and write, you know, don't 
never, ever, ever assume something, you know. Right. Why couldn't he read and write because he was made to stand at the back of the class? Well, how crazy was that? Right, right, you know, yes. he was never going to learn to read and write. And so, you know, all of those virtues about, you know, somebody's journey, get to understand their journey. Uh, you really do truly only understand a person when you understand their journey. They are values that, that you, you know, are absolutely with him. It used to drive me mad um, as a kid, you know, because you'd fall out with someone. Yeah. And you'd always expect your dad, wouldn't you, to stick up for you, you know? You would, yep. Never did. It was, it was always, you know, what did you do wrong? Why didn't you understand their position? Okay. Okay. Uh, and as, you know, as growing up, it was always... Uh, he was a shop steward, union shop steward. Really? Which, which factory was he at? Uh, he was at Tully Engineering. Oh, um, in, in Newark? In Newark, yeah, yeah. yeah in Newark. And, um, you know, he became the, the shop steward. It's classic. You know, he taught me a lot, about, actually, about unions. Probably yeah. coincidental that I, you know, I went to join the Players' Union. You know, that was what interested me. Because he taught me that, you know, unions exist. Why do unions exist? According to my dad, unions exist because management is poor. If management was really good, they did a good job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need unions. That was his kind of mantra. Um, and he taught me a lot, actually, about, you know, not so good leadership um, and, you know, where and how uh, good leadership really does build, you know, you know this teamwork, the whole, the whole concept of understanding the individual, understanding how the team at work, it matters you know, not being a leader that's unapproachable. And, and that's what's interesting because I, I get a lot of people in, in, in these interviews who talk about um, being guided by the parents uh, to, to work hard. But that team building thing is a bit unusual. It's a bit different. And obviously you're explaining where that came from. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And it does now. He keeps me very grounded. Even now at 87 years old, you know, something will happen. He'll read about something. You alluded to it early, you know, in the press, something that... An organisation that I work with probably hasn't got quite right. And, um, you know, he's my biggest critic. Oh, is he? Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, your first job, famously, I think, uh, was to uh, was, was working, serving on the shop floor at uh, Marks and Spencer's yep. in, uh, in Newark. I mean, I'm duty bound to ask you what, do you, what do you know now that you wish you'd known then? Oh, my goodness, yeah. Um... Probably, I mean, it's resilience um, is the thing that probably, you know, over all of my career, how important it is to be able to deal with setbacks. Um, you know, and when you're young, you're that age, you think, you know, you know everything. And actually, Marks and Spencer, it was in the day, Marks and Spencer was a really successful organisation. And, and Brad, if I'm brutally honest with you, a little bit of arrogance. I'm working for Marks and Spencer, you know. I guess um, that was a that was a, a, a quality employer in, in Newark at the time. Hugely so, and you know, I felt I'd made it. I really felt I'd made it, and probably what I didn't realise was what I didn't know. Mm. You, you know how much I genuinely didn't know, and the um, the the so the two things really. One, you, you know, how important it is to truly, deeply understand how a business works not just across the surface. Sure. And secondly, how important it is to be able to deal with setbacks. Um, you know, those are the two things that throughout my career, um, you know, have been things I wish the earlier I'd learned that, the easier my life would have been, um, okay. for sure. Right. And 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 from there, um, you you went, I don't quite know how this works, but you went to manage a Volvo dealership in Bristol, as I understand it. How did, how did that happen? I mean, yeah. what, what did that teach you as a, in terms of being a leader? Yeah, well, actually, at Marks & Spencer, I had, um, you know, I desperately, desperately wanted to go and do a degree. I, I was a management trainee rather than a graduate trainee. Mm. 
and I was working with with graduates, you know, actually in charge of them. You know, they yeah. gave me a lot of responsibility at a relatively early age, but I had this thing that I had to get a degree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and along came, there was a, you know, this company um, through a headhunter who said, you know, they they're looking for people who aspiring, you know, young leaders who... This was Lex, was it? This was Lex, yeah, yeah okay. and they wanted me to... They promised me that they would, would sponsor me to do a degree. Okay. Uh, they would give me a company car. Um, a Volvo. A Volvo, <laughs> yeah, which Marks and Spencer didn't, and they would pay me, you know, a little bit more money. And my goodness, you know, one of the biggest lessons I learned that, you know... A good boss is worth a lot more than a than a than a salary increase. That is for sure. Uh, but I went and 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 joined Lex, um, and it was complete opposite to Marks and Spencer. No training in the early days, um, a job which I thought was, you, you know, quite a senior role, and it really wasn't. Mm, <laughs> um, okay. And it wasn't exactly what what I'd anticipated. Um, and, you know, for the first few weeks, sick, feeling sick to my stomach that I'd perhaps made a dreadful mistake, but I couldn't admit it. My dad said to me, how can you leave Marks and Spencer? You know, it's an amazing company. In his day, you know, you joined an organisation, you didn't leave. Right. You know, and, and there was me leaving this amazing organisation to work for a company that he'd never heard of, uh, doing a job that he'd never really heard of. Um, you, you know, what was this all about? I'd been disloyal. And, you know, for the first six weeks, I thought he was absolutely right. Um, I got so much wrong. So much so that, you know, at one stage, um, I was given a final written warning. Really? Were you a, um, um, a difficult employee? Um, I, I didn't think difficult, but clearly incompetent um, <laughs> is, is the honest But wait truth. a minute. This is the point at which you got, uh, I'm, I'm looking down at my notes here, an MBA with distinction from Bath. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that so came how did that bit, come about? Uh, that, came, that came along a little bit longer. So it was a brilliant company. Um, I mean, fairly, fairly, fairly. And I had a brilliant boss who said to me look you, you know you really don't know what you're doing and you're really not admitting it um and what we need to do is to admit that you don't know what you're doing this is at lex yeah this okay. is at lex yep. and you know i think you can you need to get rid of this marks and spencer arrogance that you know we yeah. we are the best at everything in marks and spencer and so this really was a leadership lesson then oh it was a massive leadership lesson yeah uh, not least somebody taking a risk on me because quite frankly he should have probably just fired me um, well, I hesitate to interrupt your story here because I'm loving it, but 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 that that I keep on reading you say things like that about people taking the risk. What was the what was the risky they, they took on you? Oh, it would have been really easy for him to say you you know you, you're arrogant. You really don't okay. know what you're doing. Okay. I'm going to find somebody better. But he looked beyond it. He looked beyond it, and he gave me very direct feed. It's very hard to give somebody direct feedback. It's a thing we all struggle with as leaders because we feel we might hurt or whatever. But he gave me very direct, very clear, unequivocal, evidenced feedback. Brilliant. That left me nowhere to go. And no matter how much denial, no matter how hard it was for me, it was perfect timing delivered in a way that was, you know, um, very, very clear that if I didn't learn from it, I would be out of my ear. Um, And he took that risk. And, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And you subsequently ended up staying with Lex. I did. And they put you through your MBA, which they you did. passed with flying colours. Um, and it was a springboard to to further success. Yeah, to, to, to running the car dealership. Yeah, you know. And ne- so ne- you, did you end up with his job? 
Uh, well, effectively, <laughs> yes. Not, 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 not. He went on to, to bigger and better he, he, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he definitely did. He went on to bigger and better things. You sat in his chair, okay? Exactly. I sat in his chair afterwards. Yeah, uh, I still in contact with him actually. Okay. Uh, oh, so good. you, you know, it was it was a great experience. Uh, a whole host of things learned from from that experience. But I got rid of the chip. You know, about I, yeah, I wanted this degree, yeah. um, and so, it was yeah, it was a really different different job to the one I'd. Thought I'd applied for. Right, but um, if I take make a short hop and a skip and a jump here, but it must have instilled some love of cars in you because you you then at the age of, I'll read down from my notes here, at the age of 32, a very youthful 32, you were appointed to the board of motoring organisation, the RAC. Um, and, and once again, you publicly thanked the people who'd taken a risk on you. Um, so wait a minute, the first the fellow at Lex has knocked, knocked the corners off you. And so, what risk were what risk were the RSC taking? Well, this one, yeah, I mean, it was it was a big job for me to get. Um, and whilst I'd always been in sort of operational jobs, and I'd love things that are operationally focused, um, it was my first proper managing director, chief executive role. Um, and on paper, you know, was probably one that you wouldn't have obviously given to someone with my background and experience. Um, but yeah, t- you know, two bosses there, gay between the two of them because it wasn't just um, this role, but they put me on the board. I was, you know, on the board of a listed business. Which yes, was, sorry, I, I, I didn't make that clear. Yeah, managing director and a, and a place on the board. Yeah, which was, you, you know, um, again, again, I tend to tend to get these things right. You know, that's the next thing that I want. That's what I want. I really want to be on a listed board, um, and that was. You, you know, yeah, a real risk that they took with me. But I love that job. Oh, sure. my goodness, I love that job. And, and and you worked successful until the company was taken over? That's right, yeah. Um, we, so we sold the business uh, to, to Aviva, the insurer. Um, and, of course, I was the corporate overhead. You know, you ne- you're never going to want a job, a role like me, you know, as synergy is uh, you, you basically integrate the business into into the organisation, the larger organisation, so there wasn't a role. But they treated me fabulously, um, and they asked me to help with the integration, which I did for a short period of time. But they gave me an opportunity to uh, to sell a couple of their smaller businesses. Mm-hmm. And it, that in itself, again, you know, a, a, another failure, because that, that gave me time to then apply to do yeah. chief exec roles, and I couldn't get one. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, it was every time I went for a role, it was, well, we like you, you're the different candidate, but, you know, we want somebody who's got experience in this sector. So although they started off by saying that's what they wanted, I couldn't get one. So, so it, was a, it was a stuttering start to was. your non-exec career. However, you were helped at that time by the fact that, um, that, uh, that you were made uh, an MBE. 2011 for services to business and the public sector um, and at that time <laughs> I love this you expressed surprise saying but I, I did business simply because I enjoy it so you know I'm gonna ask across a wider across a wider spectrum is it important that successful leaders enjoy what they do certainly they need to enjoy some part of it um, I think any business leader would not be telling the truth to say I enjoy every single moment because that's not true. Um, you, you know, there are tough times as a leader. It can be a lonely existence. But I've had, you know, the privilege to be in roles that um, I can tend to think of three things. Am I learning? 
am I influencing things and am I am I enjoying it? Learning, influence and enjoying. Yeah, okay. those are the three things. And and not all the time, you know, can can you be ticking all those three boxes, but you definitely want two out of three. And normally, if you're having a tough time, if it's something, if, if you're in love with the business that you're, you're working in, you know, when it's a tough time, somehow that sees you through. That's the North Star, you know. I'm doing this for a sense of purpose. I'm doing it because I can see we are making a difference. Um, so, yeah, and, and to do something that, that's in a product or with a product that you, you love and you enjoy and you're interested in, it just doesn't get better than that. Okay, so let me take you back to your stuttering start of your non-exec career. So you were just coming out of the RAC, you're applying for a lot of non-exec roles, and it's not, you're not just not quite getting the job. How did you get over that hump? So uh, yeah, so the, the decision to go and to go portfolio, as it was called, then um, we got an, we had an opportunity to do a management buy into a business, but it was clear that was never going to be my kind of full time anchor job. So it was right go and go and do a few non execs non-exec roles it was a bit manic to be honest with you at the beginning it was because I panicked that you know I was used to being full-on doing the chief exec of the REC mm. you never close 365 days a year 24 hours a day we're open and that's how I did that job basically you know Christmas day I'd be going into the contact center because you know they had to work I had to work uh, or wanted to work do you, um, that's really interesting do you, do, you, do you feel that's an important part of a leader's role I, I've, I've had jobs myself where you where you, you have staff working on Christmas day I, I used to pick up the phone to them I didn't, didn't quite get from walking through the door but you you walk through the door and press the flesh while they while they were there and uh, and you weren't meant to be definitely empathy how you understand what goes on for sure certainly the way I want to go about the role. You know, I'm a real show me, don't tell me kind of person. I want to get into the to the guts of the business. Show me, don't tell me. Yes, I've had a number of people say, explain that one to me. Yeah, it's it's the way I learn actually. Um, you, you know, if you tell me how something works, um, you, you know, it's a very unemotional um, description of 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 something. Whereas you show me how you do your job, the way it works, you know. Uh, if you're in a contact centre, come and put the headphones on, listen to the customers that I'm dealing with. Um, if you're fixing a car at the side of the road, come with me. You can tell me on a set of PowerPoint slides how you go about fixing car. There's nothing like, you know, in the days of the time I spent with RIC, going and standing with the patrol at the roadside when cars are going past at 80, 90 miles an hour mm -hmm. illegally and you're <laughs> trying to fix a car. Um, you know, all the manuals in the world don't work if... You know, you haven't sure. got, got some common sense. And, you, you know, you really do get to understand the job that somebody does mm -hmm. when you go and be with them. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, there's no substitute for that. Okay. So um, you, you just touched upon it there. You, you, you've, you've had a huge array of, of roles over the last, last, the last 40 years. You know, prompts me to ask, do you think you'd have been in charge, whatever happened? <laughs> My kids would say so. <laughs> um, I've not always been in charge, actually. Um, of course not. You know, I've been in leadership roles in various different guises, um, but I'm part of a team too. I think to be a good leader, you've got to be a good follower. Um, you know, I do not think that you can be a good leader if you're not a good follower. You need to understand, you know, when you're when you're part in a team, is to not be the leader, sure. actually. So is that a, lot, that a lot of biting of your tongue and, and holding your breath? No, I think it's a it's a real um, it's a skill to be able to know actually when you're not the best leader, okay. actually, and to step back and to make that really crystal clear. 
Um, I think it's an important part of, of, of the role that we play. You know, leadership comes in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Different businesses need different things at different times. And I think the best leaders are able to, to work that through. Um, I wouldn't say be in charge. I'd say what I've loved and I've thrived on is accountability. You know, some of my, when I've, you mentioned my portfolio life, when I first started being a non-exec, I struggled a bit, to be honest with you, because I'd gone from being this full-on chief exec who was clearly accountable. And I didn't in the early days feel that accountability. I do now. I've typically gravitated towards to do chair roles where I felt very specifically accountable. And I think these days non-execs are. Corporate governance has made them much more accountable. Um, so accountability is the thing I've always thrived on. Okay. So you thrive on accountability, and, and that must provide some of the most challenging elements of your career. Um, I, 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 I'm flicking through the cuts, as one does. See, you're chair, chair of Restaurant Group, which um, owner of Wagon Mamas and, and Frankie and Benny's, when it closed 250 outlets and made 4,500 staff cuts, you know, then had a very public argument with shareholders over the, the chief execs' uh, remunerations. Are there, are, there, are there things which you reflect upon where you think, Lord Almighty, I wish I'd done that differently? Oh, definitely. Um, not, not that particular case, to be perfectly So that's the one where you were but, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I was right, but um, I think, you know, that, that's a business that um, had many challenges you know, many, many challenges. And, you know, pay is often a thing that, um, you know, gets the column inches and, you know, very often it's much more complex than perhaps the headlines um, suggest. But there's plenty of things I've got wrong in my in my business life. So go on, let's, 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 let's have, a, let's have a, a look at some of those. Then. That, like... Mainly around people. Okay. Yeah, you know, where um, you haven't made a decision to make a change quickly enough normally. Um or where, you, you know, in a business you've made assumptions about the way that a market might work. Um, you've put, you know, debt into a business at a time, you know, the market changes. Um, or you've not put debt into a business at a time you should have done. Um, you, you know, there's any number of not so good decisions. And you just hope that you've got a team around you who speak up, um, you, you know, when, when, when it looks like it, it's... You know, it's not going according to plan. And you hope that you've got the humility um, and the open-mindedness to know, this is one of other, my other sort of mantras, really, you know, the difference between when it's your opinion and when it's fact. It's and, and, again, and again, I read that. So one, of your, one of your things is you said leaders should hold a strong opinion lightly. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, look, as a leader, you know, often the highest paid person's opinion counts in many organisations. And how rubbish is that? Just because you are the leader and, you know, the most senior person or the most well-paid, does that give you the God-given right to be right? Absolutely not. There are so many times in business where people confuse their opinion with fact. You know, they say things in a way that's so authoritative, but actually it's their opinion. And when you unpack it, it's one of the things that I think, you know, I've learned as I've got older to catch myself you know, speaking as though it's my opinion and actually as my as though it's my fact, you know, it's a fact and it's actually my opinion. And I often hear people will say that, you know, that will never work as though that is factual, you, you know, but actually that's their opinion. And being able to distill um, in any discussion where we've got fact and when we've got opinion and, the, you, you know, often I've got things wrong when I've confused fact with opinion um, and when I've not paused to be sure that it is 
fact, not opinion, but I'm basing an assumption on. But then having the confidence when, because listen, there aren't, there's very few decisions as a, as a leader in com big complex organisations where all the facts are clear. Very often you have to go with your opinion, your gut feel. And I found it's really important to acknowledge that yourself, for the people around you to acknowledge it. Because then when things do go off track, you, you know, you're not then trying busy to find more facts to support why they were facts in the right place. Digging a bigger hole. <laughs> digging a bigger hole. That's a great phrase. Yeah, absolutely. Digging a bigger hole. And I think that's, you know, then about the culture you create as a leader, because you can be open about the fact. I'm not 100 percent sure. Got to be careful because there's nothing, you, you know, you can't go into every decision. So well, I'm really not sure about this because you don't inspire confidence. But on the big things, being really clear with your team, with the business, with your investors, what you are clear about and what you're not and where you are reliant on assumptions. I think it just makes it so much more transparent um, and it's so much easier for people to say, you know, it is going off track because of. Uh, really important as a leader. Good stuff. Um, um, you, you mentioned much earlier in this conversation um, your 14-year-old twins. Um, I've, I've talked about all the different business roles that you've got. You've got 14-year-old twins. I, I, I'm duty bound again to put in the conversation. You still serve as a parish councillor in the village where you live. How, do. how, does, how does a leader, a busy leader like yourself, find time for all these things? Well, certainly COVID helped because most of those uh, meetings are now uh, I am able to dial in rather than to be physically <laughs> present. Yeah, you know, it's important. Um, I think it's really important to give something back sure. and I certainly do that with you see my, that as giving back I do definitely yeah I do I do our our newsletter not so well I'm not a brilliant brilliant at writing newsletters but I I you know I make it my business to be a magpie around the community any ounce of you know information that can help anybody in the village I uh, I do a, a newsletter that oh. that goes out uh, to tell them what's happening do you get help help with help with that from the twins, or I get help with the tech from the twins, <laughs> <laughs> definitely, with that. Um, and you know, I feel it's it's you know I'm not often in the community because I I travel a lot with the jobs that I do. Um, so when I am in and around the community, I want them to know that I do care about where I live. I do care about the sustainability of mm. where I live, um, and I do care about the people that live there. Um, and this is just a way of of giving something. Giving something back. Now, how do you how do you do that in terms of time? How do you portion it up? I'm quite an organised person. Uh, uh, um, right. You know, I'm great believer in the saying. You know, give if you want something done, give it to a busy person. So I do pack a lot into my into my life, and you know, I think it's quite important um, that it's balanced in as much as it's not all just the work stuff. The parish council helps me, and it yeah, helps me also with the, some of the work stuff, some of the planning stuff that you have mm -hmm. to deal with on a parish council, you know, those things happen when I was working at restaurant group, you mentioned restaurant group, and we have planning issues or working in white stuff where we have stores, you know, we have planning issues. You learn a lot about about okay. planning. Keeps you grounded. It does, very much so, yeah, absolutely. Finally, this is podcast of the Nottingham Business School. So what advice might you offer to the aspiring future leaders who are currently starting their careers at the business school today? Probably where you started, actually, you know, and asking me about about the role when I started that resilience, you know, um, failure is not fatal. I think when you start out in your career, you know, setbacks, anything that goes that goes not quite according to the plan, you, you know, it's the end of the world. Um, I see it with my kids now, you know, when something doesn't quite go according to how they've planned, they don't get a particularly good result or something happens, you know, it's the end of your world. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that sense of perspective that actually, you, you know, it sounds such a cliche coming from somebody like me, well, you learn more from your failures, but you do. Um, and the resilience to be able to bounce back. So what I look for in any leader that I take on in any role that I'm recruiting for, you know, I, I certainly don't want people who've had a perfect career. I want to see the flaws because they, they are where you learn. They are where you get humility. They are where you establish that robustness, you know, life stuff and the ability to deal with the, you know, the grit in, in your shoe, as it were, is, is really, truly important. And I think as a youngster, people often say to me, you know, if you could give your kids one thing, what would it be? It would be resilience. Um, if you've got resilience, you know, anything that life throws at you, you, you handle uh, and you ultimately end up a better person because of it. Um, so that's the thing. Work on your resilience. Work on your resilience. Not go far off. Christoph, that was a genuinely fantastic conversation. Thanks very much. Thank Debbie you. Hewitt, thank you very, very much for joining us on the Business Leaders Podcast. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the Michelin-starred chef, Sat Baines, with the head of Capital One in the UK, Lucy Marie Hagues, or with the chairman of Burberry, Experian and Standard Chartered, Sir John Peace. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.